This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. As December dawned, other weekly shows across the media started clocking off for the year. Just so you know, next week is our final show of 2023. That is all from us for now, from our final studio programme this election year. We'll be back next year, Aterato, but until then, we hope your holidays are restful. But Media Watch was still on the job, and on Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, myself and Hayden Donnell handed out the Media Watch Awards for the year with the help of Knight's host, Mark Leachman. If you missed it and you want to know what was deemed the worst media cliche, the worst media ripoff, the best media drama, and the media overreaction of the year, and more, the Media Watch 2023 Awards is on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. But we sign off this week with a look back on some of the issues that we talked about on the programme in 2023 and our Media Watch mashup of the year's news in five minutes. Why does the state-funded newsroom have an agenda like that? Find out in the Media Watch Christmas bonus for 2023. People have been wading out of here, water up to their shoulders, flood water through their homes, carrying each other, assisting people who need help out, carrying pets. We've seen dogs pulled out, pot plants floating along the water line, rubbish bins floating, cars almost completely submerged in the floodwaters. One of the cars here still has its window wipers on, suggesting that people had tried to drive out. 2023 had only just begun when our media were again in emergency mode, offering hours of extra coverage of the Auckland anniversary weekend floods. And then in February, Cyclone Gabriel hammered Coromandel, Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay. News outlets in the hardest hit places reported the basics, even without access to the basics themselves like power, communications and even premises. News Talk ZB had to plead on the air for more diesel to keep its signal up and running in Hawke's Bay, while an extremely tired editor of Hawke's Bay Today, Chris Hyde, who was only months into the job, told Media Watch he found himself literally powerless to publish when the rivers rose, cutting the electricity and cutting him off from many of his own staff. You know, I spent the first day literally not being able to talk to anyone, really. <laughs> I was in a black hole. It was just a infuriating experience and a humbling experience to know some information but not know much, but even the information that you do know you can't tell people. And <laughs> my phone wasn't ringing at all, you know. <laughs> and then I, I just kind of realised that like, I, I actually have to and try to find some way to contact the outside world. So did you feel you were getting the information that was essential? Uh, as soon as I can, I am going out and buying a transistor radio, Colin. Um, yep, <laughs> I didn't have one at home. Yeah, it, it, it was horrific. You know, I was getting reports from photographers who were on the ground outside the Tutaikuru River. This thing's going to go, you know. Um, this thing's going to breach. And in the power cut, I, I couldn't write it. <laughs> I couldn't tell them, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I hope it never happens again. I'm in awe of um, what my journalists are going through and are handling. And, and do you know what is the state of, like, your building, your newsroom? Is, is that going to be something you can reoccupy? Or are, are you looking at working in isolation from each other for, for a, a time yet? 
our newsroom's uh, operating. The first day after the cyclone, um, Napier was actually in the best position to be, really, because Hastings, we couldn't even get inside because there's no ability to even open the doors when there's no power, and we had no power in Hastings. Um, Napier runs on a generator. Um, it, it has a, a radio office as well as a, um, a print operation there, so um, because of that, the civil defence needs of it are greater, so we have a generator there. But once Hastings got communication, power bank is definitely the easier of the two cities to operate in. A city of 60,000 people that has no power, um, even Christchurch earthquake, I was down there for that. We, as a city, we were we were ruined, but I, you know, half of the city had power. So the fact that you're part of the NZME empire has that helped as well? Resources from outside uh, the immediate area um, being able to, to to help out. Getting reporters, photographers, um, so much support from the NZME team. They've been fantastic this week. Um, one thing I would say, I have I'm an absolute awe of any newspaper editor who is able to put out a paper the day after a natural disaster. I'm four five months into this role, my first first newspaper editor role, and I. I just can't fathom how they were able to do that. They're a fantastic team. I heard just now we might have a, a um, photographer turning up and, and camping out in a tent <laughs> so that they can take some photos because uh, there's no accommodation in those things. Well, so yeah. just, just finally then, Chris, for both yourself and maybe other regional news teams and, and editors in your position and other parts of the country that have been stricken, what would help? What is there that, that you could use, both from within the media industry and uh, just from the, the general communities that you serve? Um, just to keep supporting local news, is what I'd say. Keep keep resourcing it, realising that it matters, because in moments like this, it really does matter. It affects the significant. I haven't had a chance to read about much of what's going on outside the region, but I'm aware that you know we are, we are far from the only region that is hurting right now. That was Chris Hyde, the editor of Hawke's Bay Today, telling Media Watch back in February about trying to run a paper after Cyclone Gabriel, with communications stalling and then crashing, leaving him literally powerless at home in Havelock North and cut off from his newsrooms and his reporters in Hastings, Napier and elsewhere. One year before Cyclone Gabriel caused havoc in the Upper North Island, there was chaos in the capital when the occupation of Parliament dissolved into violence as the police moved in. Now at the time, many New Zealanders didn't really know what to make of it all and neither did many of the journalists who were in the thick of it at that time. So one year later, an RNZ team trawled through the archive of images for a documentary to make sense of what happened and even help us better understand future standoffs which might end up capturing the attention of the media. RNZ's visual journalist Angus Drever not only captured some of the most compelling footage in the documentary called Boiling Point at some personal risk, Angus also directed it. And so you could have a camera live streaming from one perspective and you're going to miss all these other things. Um, and it's something you can get wrong in the documentary. If you don't get a shot from this street, you might miss some really important context. You might get the balance wrong. So it's something that we really wanted to take our time with and make sure that we told a story that... Um, was fair representation and that we felt really comfortable with it rather than, you know, live streaming from one perspective for 12 hours and saying, hey, that's the truth. You know, the camera person in this is often just kind of anonymous, just provides the vision for this stuff and we, you know, we have a presenter's track over it that often even 
left out of the editing process. I mean, this one's different. You directed it. I mean, was this a conscious decision that you wanted that role and wider input? Yeah, it was a conscious decision, but it, to an extent it was made for us. Um, ideally, in a documentary, you know, the cameraman's this, this invisible hand that's sort of guiding the audience to the, the truth and the visuals. But um, on the ground, while I was filming, the, the fourth wall was being broken constantly. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, people were talking to me, and I felt like uh, I would have to explain, okay, I moved over here because this thing was happening. And when that lady attacked me, it felt like this. And I think if I hadn't said anything, it would have felt weird and almost more dishonest to pretend like I wasn't feeling anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, yeah, important to explain even just my movements and why I moved from Hill Street over to the Court of Appeal and things like that. Yeah, and I think that was the thing that excited me more than, you know, the shots of explosions and things like that. You know, that, that stuff's... We've all seen the shots of the playground burning, and that's the thing I think is burnt in our brains. But we didn't really get to see too much from the live streams of those sort of, sorts of conversations. And I think that stuff is really interesting. And, and then seeing people online or on the street talking about the entire group as this one mob that all felt the same way. And when, um, I couldn't help but be a little frustrated because I could see that there were different groups and there were interactions within the protesters. And I think it's really important for us to remember that. Angus, having done this, having spent all this time on it, <laughs> having to revisit it a year ago, it was a stressful experience for you and everyone in the media who had to be in the thick of it. Uh, do you consider you're kind of done with this? And uh, maybe if there is more reporting to do, perhaps you don't want to be the one to have to make them? Yeah, to be honest, um, that is kind of how I feel. It's been March 2nd, 2022, pretty much every day for the last year. <laughs> um, there have been times when it's been really hard to go back and, and revisit it. But I remember the first couple of months I couldn't watch the footage for more than 10 minutes or so before I needed to go for a walk or something like that. And it got better, but actually towards the end where it all started to come together, those sort of panicky feelings started to come back and I sort of took that as a sign that, hey, we're probably getting that right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm personally pretty happy to, to move on. Mm. And finally then, Angus, so you can take a bit of a breath now, as you say, March the 2nd every day for the last year. <laughs> doesn't sound that great. Uh, but look, in, in, uh, I know you had one particular encounter on that day where um, a woman came at you swinging a camping chair, I mm. think, and you, you, know, you said at the time it struggled to sort of get your head around why, with all the things that were going on, she'd want to go for you. I think you were being called a mainstream mm. uh, in yeah. that particular encounter, so pretty clear what, what was motivating that I suppose probably not personal but have you now perhaps got your head around that sort of thing a little more? I feel like it was probably just an element of control I mean this is their home for three weeks and it, they were losing it so I, I think she couldn't fight off the wall of police that were coming down towards them but she could swing a chair at a mainstream media person um, so I, I think it was about control and doing something practical it was RNZ visual journalist Angus Drever who captured some of the compelling footage of the occupation of Parliament one year before at some personal risk and he also directed the RNZ documentary Boiling Point and there he was talking to me on Media Watch back in March. While some people closely watched all that wall-to-wall -wall coverage of that upheaval in Parliament back in 2022, day after day, some people didn't want a bar of it. And in 2023, there was plenty more in the news which wasn't exactly uplifting to see, read or hear. 
Every year, the international news agency Reuters surveys people's attitudes to news in more than 40 countries, but New Zealand isn't one of them, so AUT's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy did it here using a similar method. And this year, its pollsters also asked New Zealanders, do you actively avoid the news? And a world-leading 69% of New Zealand respondents said they do often, or sometimes, avoid the news. That's more than, say, Brazil, for example, and five times the proportion who said so in Japan. And the figure was only 20% in Finland. Coincidentally, that's the home country of the AUT's Dr Miriam Lilati, who, along with her AUT journalism colleague Dr Greg Treadwell, told me back in June why it is that Kiwis might lead the world in tuning out of the news. The fall in trust in news is connected in ways to the fall in trust in all social institutions. It's a very uh, difficult thing to unpick. And and the surveys that we're doing at the moment, we're working in the background at a much more sort of nuanced level. But the surveys are sort of bold, bold facts, right? And there's a lot to unpack in them, I think. Uh, you did also ask people why uh, they don't trust the news. And some of the main reasons uh, were the perception of biased and opinionated reporting, a lack of facts, and politicisation yep. of newsrooms. Um, it was seen as, as having a, a political leaning, uh, not enough transparency in how media operate, and specifically this government funding of journalism. Some respondents even commented that the media wasn't providing enough positive news and supporting mm. positive change. I guess that, Greg, feeds into what you were just saying about there being a kind of a mega trend and a mood that it's mm. very difficult for anyone to buck, big or small, but, yeah, particularly institutional and established ones. Yeah, absolutely. Journalists are, are, are messengers of bad, you know, they carry bad news. And, look, we, you know, I mean, the complaint that newsrooms don't do good news is a very old complaint. That goes back to when I was a journalist journalism cadet at 17 years old you know there was always the the question of why isn't there good news in the newspaper and journalists have no problem answering that with there's so much bad news we can't there's no room for the good news and also we don't necessarily need to make change around good news do we we need to make change when bad news appears and that's why bad news predominates and it's so important that we hear about what the problems we face are as a society are and and it's not PR right we're not here to polish the buttons of the government we're here to challenge them and to to, uh, to, to represent the public and all these things. And it's a messy, dirty game. And the public doesn't really like it, although they value it. So then you ask, do you trust them? And there's a whole lot of feelings come up for people who are news consumers, I think. But having said that, it is really important that we keep a close look on the top line. You know, it is falling. Trust is falling. It is a big issue. And, and even if it's falling parallel to the loss of trust in government or education or these other things that um, an increasingly polarised society is seeing as issues, even if it is part of that trend, we've still got to do something about it. Mm. And yeah. Maria, when it comes mm. to which sources people do use, uh, the report notes TVNZ and Stuff were the mm. main or most most cited sources of news for the second year in a row, so tallying with the findings of last year's survey. Uh, Facebook, though, mm. uh, the third most important source for yep. New Zealanders, according to your survey. And interesting if, if we take some of the actual comments provided by some of the respondents. For example, mm. uh, this person who is um, age 45 to 54 says, I mostly look at the official news sources when someone links an article. So on their mm. Facebook yeah. feed, presumably other than that, I like watching government stand-ups and get info straight from the source when possible. When the person says that you know they go to social media or they go to Facebook and then they find a link, so that link takes them to the news source or news perhaps to news organisations. 
when uh, we talk about some institutions or watching, for example, press conference of the government, they don't understand that actually that's mediated by the, the television or radio quite often. Mm. So it is a mediated media. Uh, uh, what comes to the social media uh, use, I think the, the, we don't know enough that what people are doing there. So if, when they say that they use, for example, Facebook as a source of, a source of news, we don't know exactly what are they doing. Are they, uh, what news are they uh, consuming? What content are they seeing? Uh, where are they going from there? So that is something we would need to understand a bit uh, deeper and do some like focus groups or something to find out how they actually use and what do they actually see and what do they actually click. Mm, yeah, and another one, this is a respondent who was female, aged 55 to 64, uh, New Zealand European ethnicity, saying, look, if you want local news, our mm. Facebook community groups are fantastic. During the flood two weeks ago, she says, I was able to see photos and video of what was going on just down the road. This is faster than any news outlet. It's local and it's real. Uh, and we know that really is an area of increase, isn't it, Mary, where people are forming local news groups and sharing news and information, some of which will come from the likes of stuff, TVNZ, RNZ, whatever, or, I mean, it could be coming from just about anywhere and have any measure of reliability or lack of it uh, attached to it. Yeah, I think you know, the, that comment also caught my eye because I think you know what they said about the purpose and function of those uh, community groups. And I think they do fill some gap for people. They do find something from there what the main news media doesn't provide them or and perhaps so quickly. When it comes to the floods and whatever, I think the media did a brilliant job. The reporters were on the ground. They were reporting as fast as they could. There's, you know, overall, I think the reporting was excellent. But they do take me back to that, you know, importance of the local reporting. There's also this parallel finding here. Those who are prepared to say they are highly interested in news, mm. just 37% in New Zealand, as opposed to, let's go back to Finland, Mary, um, 67% in, in your mm. native country. Mm. Uh, again, Spain, 55%, Argentina, mm. 48 UK, mm. 43 We're way below all of those. Why would people in New Zealand right now be saying they're much less highly interested in news than those countries. Um, we've seen restrictions, cuts, redundancies. We've seen newsrooms shrink by about 50% since the late 90s. So we've really lost a whole lot of journalists, and they're trying to cover the same number of issues. Without um, That wouldn't affect public interest in well, news, it might, though, it, it? might it might, because if I, I think the comparison between Finland and New Zealand is fascinating, because... Finland has still a much more sort of communitarian, uh, less neoliberal, if you like, approach to life. And as a result of that, their their news is much better funded. Uh, when I asked Maria, why is this newspaper in Finland so attractive to you? And I won't attempt its title, but it's the major daily in, in um, Helsinki. And she says that it's full of these really in-depth, interesting stories with social focus. And then we noticed that there's 14 and a half thousand journalists in mm. Finland. Mm. And and I'm sorry I don't know the exact figure, but I think in New Zealand it's two and a half thousand. So it, it does actually speak to what you can offer people. And, and when you see journalists having the time and inclination 
to go deep into an issue and to represent how that issue impacts ordinary people. Uh, and I think in New Zealand we're rushing the news. And I'm not blaming journalists for that because the same stuff has to be covered with fewer resources. You're inevitably going to get a thinner coverage. Uh, and I think people are, some people are going, well, I'm not into the news because, and, and frankly, Colin, I, I don't think we can underestimate the impact of the pandemic on how people were suddenly shocked by just how their normal lives could suddenly be disrupted. We don't blame journalists for the pandemic, but what we do have to put up with them in our living room, giving us the daily death numbers. And so when people decide, do I want to turn the news on or not? You know, I think actually at the moment, life's so difficult and challenging, they don't want to hear it. Um, but I do also think that we've ended up with a media that doesn't have the resources to do that, that stuff that uplifts the reader, that makes them super interested in the issue and feel informed and feel that there are possibilities of solutions and they want to get involved. And uh, it's a speculation, but I, I think resources in New Zealand journalism are inadequate. Mm. There's also, I think, that, you know, in Finland, the news organisations together run massive media literacy programs in the schools. They start to build up the interest in the news and the politics, etc., really in a you know young age. So the school kids already are learning about the media. I don't think we have those here. I think it's time to bring and do something about that. Mm, I agree with Although that. Although there that... is still, I guess, a huge appetite for news. The mainstream news sites such as Stuff and Herald are right up there with all websites, trade me, the whole lot that people like to use. So it makes me a little surprised that people were um, giving that response about not being as highly interested in news as, as people in other countries. Sorry to compare it to, again uh, to my home country, Finland, but people are paying the tax there for the broadcasting tax they believe and feel the broadcaster belongs to them. Mm. And this is something we're lacking here. I, no offence, but... I yeah, think, I, I think... Don't take it, isn't The idea of a broadcasting tax license or fee is a controversial one. Um, but if you do look at places where they exist, there's a, a sense of emotional investment and actual financial investment from each household, rather than, oh, is this what the government's spending our money on? But then it's given the status of what I think it should always have had, education, health, public media. You know, we are paying for this because it's important. And then uh, I think also that the issue of whether our young rangatahi in, in Aotearoa are adequately prepared for media as they become adults, you know, what what is the level of education around civics? Mm. Um, even the media studies teachers at high schools tell me that they uh, largely tend to teach the Marvel movies because the it's it's easier and kids aren't really interested in journalism. But high school teachers who do teach journalism also tell me that it's an incredible exp- and transformative experience for young people. So we've I mean we've got to get civics back into school. And when I said that to a friend who's a media teacher, I, I said something on social media media about how important media literacy was and he said there are 13 literacies competing for the attention of our children <laughs> you know and so so it is a yeah. complex issue mm. right but i do think that mm. that a sense of the the public role of the media is 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 almost at risk of being lost in new zealand and, and therefore we get these the weaponizing of the term mainstream media is is really problematic yeah. it's 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 become a negative instead of we own this this is us this is the voice mm. that is inquiring into the issues that we face that was Dr. Greg Treadwell and earlier Dr. Maria Mililati from the AUT's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy, whose 2023 Trust in News survey, released last April, found a startling proportion of Kiwis say they have turned off from the news, and a rising proportion said 
they didn't trust our media. Now one other thing that dents trust in news is statistics that end up in news stories but don't stand up to much scrutiny. Though it's not unusual to see a startling statistic in a headline which makes you think, is that right? Or maybe even, is that right? And frequently, that's the idea to get your attention. Back in August, Hayden Donnell looked at some classic cases of this and a new one which took it to a new level. Anyone logging into onenews.co.nz from their home office last weekend would have received some disturbing news about their apparently deteriorating bodies. Under the headline, Research Reveals What Remote Workers Could Look Like in the Future, the site ran a series of pictures of a digitally generated model dubbed Anna, along with a story describing her as a vision of what working from home could do to people by the year 2100. As it turns out, not commuting into the office is more harmful than you might have thought. Here's what it did to Anna, according to One News. Anna is a grotesque figure, with claw hands, swollen limbs, red eyes and a hunched back due to consistent use of laptops and smartphones, poor posture and an unhealthy diet. Terrible news, and even worse that this projection was apparently based on research. Except, as it turns out, it wasn't. A cursory glance at the story's origins shows Anna was actually invented seemingly out of whole cloth by the Scottish company Furniture at Work UK. Hardly a disinterested party when it comes to the working from home debate. It seems rather than robust research, the story was a barely disguised ad for office furniture. In fact, the link to the Furniture at Work UK blog introducing Anna later redirected to a page selling ergonomic desk chairs after it started being included in news stories. Good web traffic if you can get it. One News eventually deleted its story, but it was far from alone in spreading Anna across the internet. Stuff also ran a story on Furniture at Work UK's invention with the headline, Remote Worker of the Future Could Look Like This, Say Researchers. They were following in the footsteps of a host of international outlets, including the Daily Mail and the New York Post. It's not the first time Furniture at Work UK has employed this PR trick to great success. In March, it convinced the Daily Mail to run a story on its similarly made-up vision of what offices could look like in the year 2050. It's also not the only entity using dicey research or so-called study results to garner uncritical media coverage. In May, One News reported on a study that it said cemented the theory that garlic can help treat the flu or even COVID-19. As it turns out, the non-peer-reviewed study it was citing was commissioned by the lobby group for Australia's garlic producers. Experts described it as extremely early lab bench research which is unlikely to prove useful in clinical settings. The list goes on. Back in 2018, Stuff reported on what it called the surprising link between exercise and infidelity, while nzherald.co.nz ran a story about what it said were the most unfaithful professions. Both reports relied on unscientific, self-selected surveys filled in by users of the infidelity-friendly dating website Ashley Madison. Hardly carefully weighted polling and good exposure for the website. 
Most publications would never dream of running advertising for free or publishing a highly ideological press release verbatim, but they may do so if the same information is presented in the form of research or study results. The Science Media Centre recently highlighted the use of what it calls cloaked science, where technical language, difficult to understand graphs and charts, or seemingly scientific data, are deployed to hide a political, ideological or financial agenda. Dr Sarah Jane O'Connor, a teaching fellow at Victoria University's Centre for Science and Society, joined me to talk about how reporters and editors can spot less than credible studies in order to report their results a little more sceptically. Science and research and scientists have a lot of trust already. It's good that the public and the media trust scientists, but it means that people who might want to get their own messages out, whether it's you know their own company's PR or maybe even misinformation, might kind of jump onto that bandwagon and use that same terminology, the study, the research, you know, new new research published to borrow that ear of credibility and try and get their own messages across. How do reporters and editors not fall for it? The stuff that journalists are doing all of the time, so trust but verify, wanting to have a look at where this information is coming from. So there's a few key things to look for. I'd always be looking to see where research has been published, and um, unfortunately academic publishing takes a very long time, but it does show that there's been a little bit of robustness around the process, that a few other people, a few other experts have looked at this research and checked that it's legitimate, that they have done what they said they've done. Um, And then I would be looking to see who's actually done this research, who's paid for it, are there any conflicts of interest, if it's funded by a company that might benefit from this research or survey or whatever it might be, that should raise some, some alarm bells. There can still be good research funded by industry and companies, but it's just still um, investigated a little bit further. I always say if we're looking at things like surveys, we need to be clear. It's really hard to do a good survey to make sure that you're actually getting a, a fair sample of, of people who might respond. So if, for instance, a company was doing a survey just of their members or the people who are signed up for their newsletters or whatever that might be, that's going to be a very biased sample. It's not going to be representative of a wider wider population. And then we see a lot in, in health um, where we might see a new study come out, especially things like, you know, such and such causes cancer or whatever it might be, and buried way down in the details, we might find out actually the study was done on 10 mice and it's not at all applicable to humans, or at least not yet. Those headlines that we see can be really influential once they're published and yes they might get corrected later on or get retracted later on but some people will have only seen that first story and they might believe that scientific information so I do think it's really important to stop and take that time and take that responsibility to make sure that what's being reported is as accurate as as a journalist can can figure out in those time pressures. Thanks very much Sarah Jane. Thank you Hayden. Hayden Donnell there looking at the latest in a long line of supposedly startling stories generated by surveys or research from people with a product to push. Well, here at Media Watch Now, it's time to stop pushing ourselves onto you and just let the news from 2023 speak for itself. We round out Media Watch's 2023 with the news of the year in just five minutes, without interruption from us, until the very end. Um, you call me a pessimist if you want to. 
but I don't think that makes any difference whether it's 2022 or 2023. And it's always about, oh, we're going to 2023, it's going to be wonderful. No. This country is going down the dunny in terms of its infrastructure. The potholes are worse than on our old roads that they're fixing. $1.2 billion for Transmission Gully. I reckon that was cheap. You're saying to those people, sorry, you're not allowed to have a car. Oh, shit. You know, I wasn't expecting it. And finally, this person just says election 23. It's going to be the potholes and ram raids election. Oh, goodness, I hope there is uh, more to it than that. Well, you can never have too many wheat bucks, can you now? <laughs> I mean... I uh, can. Terrifically offensive, Christopher Luxon, if you're listening. It's actually called reporting the news. What I'm really excited about is that we have just discussed three different policies. You know, who knows? We might be able to uh, roll that merger out. Massive physical forward packs beating the living snot out of each other. Coach and guru Smith has revealed he recently became so frustrated while watching a game, he switched off to watch a nature documentary. Rugby isn't cool. It can still be played well, but too often it isn't. Joe Moody's face said it all. Oh, shit. And get this, mass voting fraud did occur. And a cynic, Jack, might say that it's poll-driven and 87 no. days out. No. Not me. Chris Luxon and Chris Hipkins. <laughs> and we called it a Chris-off. Yeah. Mm. Two Chrises, if that's what we're calling it. Chris V. Chris, who's coming out on top so far? Oh, definitely it's the Prime Minister. Prime Minister. We're going to see a lot of mongrel in this election. OK, so let's talk about the mongrel. Bills, I've got to pay. So I'm going to work, work, work every day. Somehow people still don't feel like they really know you. It's an interesting one because I think people know what I've done. Nicola, how embarrassing is this now? We must know him by now. Swing voters who were considering voting Labour will now go nah. Oh, nah. But they sort of sound the same and even look the same. OK. Why does the state-funded newsroom have an agenda like that in an election campaign? You know, go and talk to someone in an A&E department at a hospital or go and talk to, I don't know, a firefighter, you know, anyone like that. Thank you, Rupert. Uh, just to sit there and watch him eat lamb chops was, um, was quite an honour. Sick, to be honest. Better life to get murdered by a jellyfish. Uh, There's lots to watch out for in Australia. Mm. Sort of coming, you know, past your window and some pizza goes by. Brought to you by Kiwi Bank. Is yeah. there a mac and cheese? Sure is. Oh. In terms of PR, that just went terribly wrong, didn't it? But we're too busy comparing ourselves to basket cases like Spain and France. We're just so chill. Because everyone's had a guts full. Right, Jenna, the community has been fed up for some time, but is the government a little late to the party this time? Finally picking up on the depth of anger in the electorate. This is reactive and it is rushed. They hurried this out in such a fluster that embarrassingly they mucked up their own policy. Justice seems to be a bit based on vibes recently. Yeah, well, I mean, the politics of law and order are a mixture of um, evidence and emotion. One of the great things about the internet is that everybody can be a publisher. One of the terrible things about the internet is that anybody can be a publisher. I think it's very hard to for governments to say that they're going to step in and regulate something that is so poorly understood. What's the upper limit for lollies from the basket? I think three is fair. What's your favourite, Leanne? Oh, I don't know. Hip, hip, away. Hip, hip, away. Free cheers for the king and queen. Hip, hip, away. I just don't feel that I owe them anything. I think it's sort of old fashioned. I wouldn't do that. People within this building have been leaking against us from day one. Is that right? And we have been scapegoated. We're never going to get an award. We should actually go and sponsor the awards. And that way we get a seat at the table, because otherwise we're never going to get a shoe in. I mean, they should never have even 
promoted this idea in the first place and then to have to walk away from it, it just looks a little flip-floppy, doesn't it? Seven fifty for three tomatoes. Wow. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. The reason tomatoes are so expensive at the moment is because it's winter. What is the point of doing this? Why? Yeah, well, it's going it's to happen, it's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. I don't need no, to no. know. Hello. Hello, is it John? Speaking. Hey, John, it's Colin here at Radio New Zealand in Wellington. How are you going? Fine. I think you might have got the wrong John Harris. We, anyway, we could just talk to you about the Beatles anyway. No, I better not do that. Well, okay. you could if you really want to. <laughs> Bye. Hayden, you're going to fly by night. And with that, <laughs> I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> Hayden Donnell and myself, Colin Peacock there, rounding out the Media Watch mashup 2023 in the media in just under five minutes. And that's it for Media Watch in 2023. Enjoy your Christmas and your New Year, and we'll be back again at the same time on Sundays in late January 2024, here on RNZ National.